0: King David's heart was pounding out of his chest. He was anxious, he was nervous, paranoid, as before him stood the messenger who had just come from the battle bringing the news he hoped to hear. He He could not believe he was in this moment. It felt like his whole life had come to this point, this life and death moment and he was replaying what had happened in the last few weeks in his mind and he could not believe it. He had innocently gone to the roof to look around and and he had brought a woman to the to the palace, and he had done something he, he never intended to do, but it happened. And what was supposed to be something that would be soon forgotten, a one night stand, had taken a whole new turn. He had not told anybody about his shameful secret. He knew that. Nobody knew other than Bathsheba, obviously she participated in his act of adultery, but certainly she wouldn't say anything because she might lose her life as well, and if she didn't care about her life, she had to care about the life of the baby that she now carried that was the king's. He had already tried a couple of ways to cover up what had happened he had sent to the field and brought back Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband, under the, under the pretense of getting a, a war update. And Uriah had come into the palace. He had had dinner together with David, given the update, and then David gave him a gift basket of wine and cheese and sent him home and said, go to Bathsheba, I know you haven't been with her for a long time, you know, do what married guys do. And then, uh, oh, we'll send you on your way. The only thing David didn't calculate was that Uriah was a man of honor. And as soon as Uriah walked out of the palace door, He said, I can't go home to Bathsheba. Not when my fellow soldiers are on the front line. They're fighting for their life. They can't go home to their wives. Why should I do that? So he said, I'm going to spend the night here at the door with King David's servants. And so the next morning, King David had hoped the problem would be taken care of because then he could say the baby wasn't his, it was Uriah's. But... He discovered, no, he hadn't gone home. So plan B, he invited Uriah to dinner and he told the servers to make sure you keep his wine glass full. Don't let it run out. And so over the course of the evening, Uriah kept drinking and he got a little hammered. And then He sent Uriah off to go be with Bathsheba, but even in his intoxicated state, he was a man of integrity, and he realized, I can't do this to my fellow countrymen. And so the next morning when King David found out that Uriah had not gone home, he felt backed into a corner. Now, he knew Uriah was a a soldier. He was a warrior. He had signed up for this. He had signed up to put his life on the line. And it wouldn't be unusual at all for a soldier to get killed in battle. So he had Uriah wait outside as he wrote a scroll with some instructions to Uriah's commander, Joab put Uriah on the front lines and then back away and let him be vulnerable and let him fall. He put the king's stamp on the scroll stuck it in Uriah's hand, his own death warrant, and sent him back to the front lines. And now this messenger was standing in front of David and he was waiting to hear if his plan was successful. And he asked the messenger, how goes the battle? And the messenger said, it's going fairly well, although the enemy We fought them in the the valley, and they retreated to their walled city, and we sent some men up to the city walls, and some of the king's men have been killed, including Uriah the Hittite. The messenger could see a brief moment of relief on David's face, which seemed odd, hearing he had just lost some soldiers, but David quickly recovered and said, go tell Joab to keep pressing the battle try harder and you will win the day that is the story one of the saddest stories in the bible of david and bathsheba that's found in second samuel chapter 11 and 12 and what you just heard was the ndt the new dan translation of that story And we're gonna learn from David today a masterclass on how to come back from failure, how to move past failure. We are in a series called Unpacking. We're learning how we can leave behind the heavy things that seem to hold us back. And failure has got to be one of the heaviest things that we carry in life. As we were talking about this this week, Pastor Chris said, hey Dan, you're good at failure, why don't you take this topic? I'm not sure how I felt about that, but that's not exactly what he said, that's just how I interpreted it. But we're gonna be talking about failure today, and the definition, definition of failure really is to fall short of success, to fall short of my expectations. And According to that definition, I have failed a lot in life. I was thinking about the first failure I could remember, and it was when I lied to my mom about dropping a cookie outside. You see, I had eaten the cookie, but I wanted a second cookie, so I went and I lied to her about dropping my cookie. Now, her being much older than me saw right through my lie, and I got a spanking. But It did start me, launched me into a series of lies that I used to try and get out of trouble. I I had character failings early on in life. Uh, I actually failed, my first class I failed was in fourth grade, I failed history. And you know what happens, if you fail history, you're doomed to repeat it. Anyway, that's a bad joke, sorry. I failed when I asked women out or girls out in high school. I, I failed in some sports. I, I failed financially. I failed in business. I have failed in so many ways. Sadly, I failed in a marriage. And some of my failures, I forgot about the next day. Some, I carry scars to this day. And we all fail. That's one thing we have in common. I'm not going to tell you to turn to your neighbor and say you're a failure. That's just not very encouraging. But what I want to say to you this morning is if you have had a failure, you're not a failure. If you've had a failure, you're not a failure. You are not defined by an experience that you had in life, even if that experience was the sum total of a lot of bad choices. Failure happens really because we fail to anticipate all the things that will happen in the future. We may, maybe we don't anticipate our weaknesses, our lack of willpower, our stamina. Uh, We don't anticipate our skill level that we'll need. And there's always things that are out of our control that come at us, and so failure just happens. It's a part of life. But failure is a lot like a wound. If you fail, and you don't heal properly, that wound will get infected. It'll, it'll get infected with insecurity and isolation and shame and guilt, and it will be hard for you to move on from that failure. So we're going to learn how today to move on from failure. David does it by doing this. He receives the failure. He grieves the failure, and then he leaves the failure behind. But in each step, he does something very important that we need to take to heart if we're going to get past our failures today. So this uh, story I read was from 2 Samuel, and can i going kind of go back a little to the beginning. Uh, as I said, David was normally at battle it was the time of year and he would accompany his troops to battle but this time he decided to stay home and and so he had some idle time on his hands and when he was standing on his roof which overlooked most of the city he could see down into houses there's a lot of misnomers about this a lot of people think well what was Bathsheba doing taking a bath on the you know he saw this naked woman taking a bath What, what was she doing there um, she really wasn't on a roof. It's likely that the house had a courtyard and he could see down into the courtyard. Another thing we know about Bathsheba is it says he had, she had just done a ritual cleansing. In Israel's time when they went to worship God, they did something that was ceremonial. They did something that was uh, to prepare them to be in the presence of God. So uh, the uh, priests, they would wash themselves before they went into the presence of God. And she had had her monthly cycle. And so she had done a ceremonial washing. It's likely that's what David saw when she was down there. We get into trouble sometimes when we're looking at things we shouldn't be looking at right? Maybe a screen, a television screen. We get in trouble sometimes when we want things we shouldn't want. You know, that uh, St. Laurent purse at, you know, at the Nordstrom's, those are like two grand or something, but I know some of you have them, that's fine. But if you charge up your credit card, maybe not. We get in trouble when we do things we shouldn't do, and it leads to failure. So, I want to talk a little about Uriah because I think it's important to understand who he is. When I first read about his story, I just thought, oh, he, his name's put in the story because he's a part of the story. So, we just should know his name. But he actually had a pretty significant role in David's life. You see, Uriah wasn't just a soldier, he was David's friend. He was somebody who had given his loyalty to David many, many years before. He was called one of David's 30 mighty men. You can read about them in first, I think it's first Chronicles 11. It it lists all of the men. And so these were one of those guys that would travel around when David was being chased by King Saul. Uh, he, He was one of these guys who would fight for David when they had an enemy coming at them. And they were like the Navy SEALs of David army. And so he knew who Uriah was. He didn't necessarily know who his wife was, but he had spent a lot of time with him. What in the world would motivate someone to murder a friend like that? Two things, shame and fear. Shame and fear are powerful motivators for doing wrong in our life. And all of us have probably done something that we would like to cover up. And sometimes it's easier to lie about it than it is to admit guilt because shame is powerful. And David was ashamed and fearful of this getting out. So, I'm here to tell you today that we can overcome failure. We can move past failure. And in fact, we might find that we even thrive past failure in our lives. So go ahead and pull out your notes if you have them with you. If you're following us online, you can download those notes. Uh, point number one, to move past failure, admit responsibility and accept grace. Admit responsibility for what you've done. Admit responsibility for the actions you've taken. And even if it's a failure that happened to you through no fault of your own, you've got to admit you have a failure in front of you. And it's hard for us to admit failure. I mean, we kind of start off in life not wanting to own up to things, don't we? Right, when we're, when we're little, you ever heard the dog ate my homework excuse, right? We come up with excuses all the time. Uh, I, I was thinking about this recently uh, oh, one, of the, one of my favorite excuses is the devil made me do it. You ever had that one? <laughs> the devil's got to be just so happy when he hears that because like, he's getting all kinds of credit for stuff that he has nothing to do with, but he likes it. Uh, w- when I was at uh, Bayside, I was the singles pastor for a while, and uh, we had 100 marriages come out of that ministry while I was there, which was a lot. But we had far more people that were doing a lot of dating. And we would have these people that were serial daters and I would hear sometimes that, man, I can't seem to find anybody. I keep running into the same person. I d- date the same guy or I date the same girl. I've dated three or four different women and they're all the same person. My picker is broken. I don't know if you ever heard the picker being broken. That's, that's I guess a thing that helps you you find a spouse. Anyway. They, I always thought like, what is, is that like something that doesn't point right? Like I'm pointing to you here, but it's going over this woman over and somehow I ended up with this woman. A picker is not something you can take to the doctor and have repaired. A picker is you. But, but saying my picker is broken is easier than saying I'm broken. I'm a mess. I'll never forget I actually did go to a counselor after my divorce because I dated a lot of the same women, all a little bit crazy, and I remember going I remember going to the counselor and saying, "I got a problem. I just there's only crazy women out there apparently." And he said, "What's the common denominator?" And I said, "Crazy women." Right? No, that's not it. You see, I'm like a puzzle piece when I'm broken, and I fit with somebody else who's broken. And, and we have failures in our life. If we don't address those failures, we're gonna continue to connect with the wrong people and continue to do the wrong things. So we've got to admit our responsibility, and David was not ready to admit it. Several months had passed since his indiscretion. Uh, Obviously, by now, Bathsheba was in the the palace. Her her belly was showing, and he thought everything was good. It was behind him. But Nathan was coming to challenge him. God had sent Nathan the prophet to confront David about his sin. And I think if Nathan had gone up to say, hey, David, do you have anything you want to tell me? He would have said, "Mm, no, right? Right? So Nathan had to soften him by telling him a story, and this is what he tells him, and it's found in 2 Samuel 12, it's not in your notes, but here's what Nathan says. There's a guy in in the city, his name's Barry, and Barry has a little lamb, and his fleece is white as snow, and everywhere that Barry goes, the lamb is sure to go. All right, maybe that's not true, that's a horrible joke, but there is a guy in the town who has a lamb. He's a poor guy, all he can afford is a lamb, it says he raised the lamb with his children, like one of his own. The lamb would eat off his plate. It would drink out of his water cup. The lamb would even crawl into bed with him at night. He just loved this lamb like it was his daughter. And I know some of you are going, that's just flat out weird. Like letting let the lamb sleep in your bed. Meanwhile, you have a German shepherd on the foot of your bed. Uh, he eats from your plates. He licks you in the face when you come home. Let's just admit it, when we're pet owners, we're all just a little bit weird. So anyway. Barry has this lamb, and next door to him, he has a wealthy neighbor who has a lot of property and a lot of sheep on his property. And it says, uh, as Nathan's explaining to David what's happening, he says this wealthy man had a, a, a friend come from town, a traveler, and he had to feed him. So he looked out in his backyard, he saw all these sheep, but he saw Barry's sheep, and it was... A nice sheep. I mean, it's like perfect. It it looked really tasty. So he went over and he stole Barry's sheep and he cooked it up for his friend. And as soon as David heard this story, he was outraged. He said, that man deserves to die. That man should pay back fourfold whatever he took from his neighbor. You see, Nathan tricked David because then he said, you're the man. You're the wealthy man. God said you had anything you wanted, and if you wanted more, I would have given it to you. But what you did is you took something that didn't belong to you. You're the wealthy man. And so Nathan is proclaiming judgment against David, and David is hearing it, and the first time he's realizing there is a God that sees everything. He thought he had covered this up. So let's look at the passage in 2 Samuel 12 13 and 14. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's how you apologize. That's how you own something. No qualifications. No, you don't understand my upbringing. My mom was really mad to me, bad at me, whatever. It's just, I have sinned against the Lord. Done. And then Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. There were other consequences as well, but that was one of them. And so in this moment, David is accepting, he's taking responsibility on himself. But friends, I'm here to tell you, if you just beat yourself up, forever, when you have made a mistake, when you've had a failure, that is not where God wants you to land. That's not where he wants you to end. He wants you to move past that. One of the most incredible things about this narrative is we read the story in 2 Samuel, but it's amazing because we get to look at David's journal. We get to look at David's diary because he records what's going on inside his mind as he's processing everything that he's hearing from Nathan. And you can find that in Psalm 51, 1 to 11. Let's go ahead and pull that up on the screen. So this is what his journal says. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Notice he is begging God for mercy. Based on not a deservedness for mercy, but based on the nature of God. God has unfailing love and it's tied to him being merciful to us. Because of your great compassion, God is a compassionate God. So please blot out my stain because that's your nature. You're compassionate. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Think about this for a moment. You see this back and forth. God, please clean me. You're good. I'm bad. God, I need your mercy. It's this back and forth seesaw that's going on. I love that he's showing the emotions that happen in the midst of a failure because that's how we are, right? In one moment, we're thinking about, we're just feeling awful. The next moment we're thinking, please help me get out of this. I don't wanna feel this way anymore. This haunts me a day and night. You ever had those moments where you wake up in the middle of the night and your brain starts going and it won't shut off and two hours later, you're still ruminating on something that happened? He understands that. It's like a ghost that haunts you. You're driving down the road, everything's fine, listen to a song, it pops into your head again. The failure, there it is, it's going through your head. You're talking to somebody at a coffee shop and all of a sudden your failure pops into your head. You feel like you're, you're an imposter. You feel like if anybody knew the real you, they would reject you. David understands that. He's saying, this is haunting me day and night. But he goes on. Against you and you alone have I sinned, in other words, I'm not making any qualifications, God. You're the one that establishes what's good and what's not, and I have failed. I've done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. In other words, I could trust you for being a good God. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Give me back the joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. In other words, you ever felt like that? Like, ah, I wish people would stop talking about me. Remove the stain of my guilt. Anybody ever worn a pair of pants? You look at them, there's a big ugly stain. And then you realize every time you see somebody, that's the first thing you're going to notice. Ooh, gosh, what's that, right? It's just like that in life. Like when you have a failure, it just feels like a stain that everybody can see. Create in me a clean heart. Remove a, re- renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. So David is both admitting responsibility for the act, but he's accepting God's grace. He's asking for God's grace and receiving God's grace. And friends, that is the only thing that will help us when we have failed. God's grace is the thing that can begin to lift us up again out of that. Secondly, if we wanna move past our failure, admit, excuse me, I'm sorry. (laughs) Move past failure, we need to weep and worship. There's There's a sense in which every failure is a loss. Every failure has consequences attached to it. Certainly we lose maybe our self-esteem, right? We feel bad about ourselves because we did something stupid. But also there's usually consequences. If we've charged up our credit card, we have financial constraints. If we've committed a crime, we might go to jail and lose freedom. There's there's consequences that come with failure. And so it's normal and it's healthy to grieve it. I think sometimes we wanna stuff it down and if we stuff it down and don't think about it, it'll be all good. No, just get it out. Get it out in the open. Embrace the mess that is you and me. A minor failure sometimes just kind of goes away. We don't think about it. We don't need to cry about it. Oh, that was dumb, right? Move on. Major failures, Sometimes we just need a good, uncontrollable, sobbing, snot bubble, blowing, hard to breathe. You ever seen kids when they're young? You know, sometimes we just need to just intensely weep. And this is what David's doing. We see it in 2 Samuel 12, 17. It says, the elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. I just want to say something real quick. Um, I think it's, it's kind when people see you in, in misery that they try and reach out and help you, right? Um, I, but I think sometimes we can go a little too far. If someone is just deep in grief, you know, you don't want to go up to them and say, come on, buckaroo, turn that frown upside down. You know, you just want to let people grieve, but there's something called a ministry of presence. I mean, chaplains know about this, pastors know about this, but just being with somebody, just your presence next to them as they're going going through difficulties is powerful. And so he's refusing anything. He's continuing his grief. Then on the seventh day, the child died and David's advisors were afraid to tell him how distraught it was so radically distraught. They were afraid he would kill them when they told him he wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill. They said, what drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied, he's dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes, and he went to the tabernacle and worshiped the Lord. And after that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. I think when you go through something difficult and you take the time to grieve, there has to be a point in which you start taking care of yourself again. He takes a shower. Obviously, he he probably hadn't even thought of that. He was just on the ground weeping and praying. But at this point, what's the point? He got up, he washed himself, And then rather than being introspective and looking at his own failures, he turned his sights on God, the God of grace, the God of love, the God of mercy that had told him he was forgiven and he began to worship him. We need to turn our weeping into worship. And finally, to move past a failure, we need to learn and then live. You need to learn and then live. You know, if you take the time to evaluate a negative experience, it's powerful in your life. If, if you take the time to uh, understand why the failure happened, it can help you avoid having failures in the future. There's a lot you can learn from failure. There's a lot you can learn about yourself and some of your weaknesses in the midst of failure. And David learned a lot. Failure is a powerful teacher. And I just want to say this to some of you younger people. You don't have to step on a nail to find out that it's painful. You can learn from other people's failures. Not every lesson we learn in life has to be a lesson that we experience. And so it's good to look at others around you and see what they've done. I think a lot of younger siblings do that with their older sibling. They go, oh, they got in trouble. Not gonna do that. All right. So here's here's what David does as he learns from his experience. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. I had hope, now I know God's word was true. I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. He understands God, he's a gracious God. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him one day, this is so powerful. I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. David had an eternal perspective. Teresa and I were talking about this week, how powerful an eternal perspective is. Because when you really think about everything that boils down in our life is not that significant. As horrific as it may be, when you look at it in the light of eternity, it's nothing. It helps us to put things in perspective. And David is saying, you know what? I'm going to see my child again. I don't have to worry about it. He's in God's hands. He's going to take care of this. Then David comforted Bathsheba. He turned his sights to somebody else, his wife, and he slept with her and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son and David named him Solomon. Sound familiar? The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan, the prophet, that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. David moved from self-focus to other focus. He learned his lessons and moved on and God blessed him. Let's go back to David's, let's go back to David's, uh, David's journal here. Psalm 51, David says this, restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels. And they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken a repentant heart, O God. See, David has learned a lesson. He's learned grace First hand, and there's nobody that can explain grace better than someone who's received it. He says, I'm going to use my mouth for good. I'm going to talk to rebels like me about changing their path, changing their ways. There's something powerfully transformative about somebody who allows a failure to be powerful in their life for the transformation of others. There's a guy by the name of Jimmy McGill, and he uh, he lives in Arkansas, and he's a pastor to the uh, pastor to people who are trying to recover from addiction, a recovery pastor. Uh, he does a phenomenal job. So many lives have been transformed through his ministry, but he's a 17-time felon. He spent many years in prison. He was an addict, but God has taken that experience and turned it around. Uh, you ever heard of Dave Ramsey? Dave Ramsey runs a little thing called the Financial Peace University. Anybody gone through financial peace here? I have, Teresa and I have. Uh, Six million people have gone through Financial Peace University. And you listen to Dave Ramsey, you go, that guy's brilliant when it comes to finances. He gives such good advice. Like, cut up that credit card, you know? But Dave Ramsey began as a person deeply in debt, so much so that he had to go through bankruptcy. He had a massive failure in his life. But God has a way of taking the failures that we experience and turning them around into something powerful. The worst day of my life, without question, it's seared into my conscience, was the day that I had to sit my kids down and tell them that their mom and I wouldn't be together anymore. I remember the cries. I remember the anger, like it was yesterday. So I didn't want to say it. And it's a wound I carry, and I guarantee you it's a wound they carry. And you you would think nothing good can come of that because it was a horrific thing. You can't paint it good in any way. But it started a journey for me, a journey to find a new church, a journey to start serving. I was asked to serve as a volunteer to a group of singles, which I accepted and I did. And I shared my broken story and my broken life and all the failures that I experienced. And I was never... I, I, I was always surprised at how many people would come up afterwards and, oh, that's my story. Oh, that happened to me too. So many people carry around private shame and they think they're the only ones with a failure in their life until somebody else comes along and just shares their failure. And God built a powerful ministry on my greatest failure. I took all the lessons I learned from my dating life and my past marriage, and actually would teach on it all the time, I ended up writing a book about it, and thousands of people, it's gone around the country and in in the UK, and have, have read the book, it's helped them. God's taken my failure, and somehow he's transformed it into something powerful in the lives of others. And if I were to go around this room, I guarantee you, you've got stories and some of your stories have radically transformed you and other people that know you. And that is a reason to give God praise. Some of you though, have failure you've never dealt with. Maybe you haven't admitted it. Maybe you haven't grieved it and dealt with it, but God is there for you. He knows about it. He knows how to get you out of it, how to help you move past it. All you have to do is open yourself up to him. Maybe you need the help of a counselor. That's fine, no shame in that. I'm a big proponent of counseling, I've done it so many times. Don't let your failure define you and keep you in the past. When God has a powerful future, ahead of you. There are some people in this room that are doing life alone. You have had failures, but you have not invited God to be a part of the solution to your failure. And that's okay. That's your choice. But I'm here to tell you, there's there's light on the other side of the darkness you're in. There's relief from the pain that you feel when you allow God to come into your life and to begin to work through the failure you experienced and bring you out the other side. Trust me, I've seen it over and over again. I think sometimes we we feel unlovable and we think God doesn't love us, but God loves us because He's a loving God. Sometimes we don't feel useful, we don't feel we have the tools, but we don't have to be worried about being used by God because He's powerful. God can transform your worst failure into something powerful in your life. Trust him, he did it in David's life, he did it in mine, and he can do it in yours. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we think about a room this size, and we've all experienced failure, loss, we carry the wounds many of us from the failures of our past scars and we are grateful we have a god that can redeem our worst moments our biggest mistakes who loves us in spite of rebellion and selfishness and things we've done and so We just worship you and honor you right now for who you are, a good and a loving God, a sacrificial God. And the mercy that you give us was not free, but was at a cost of your own son, Jesus Christ, and his death for us on the cross. And so I just pray right now, if someone is wrestling with failure in their life, they are struggling because they just feel down, They, they feel less than, they've identified themselves as their failure, I just pray that you would speak to them right now. Let them know how much they're loved, how much they have value in your sight, how they can be used by you. And then they might be able to tell somebody, maybe a friend or a counselor about that and begin to work through that failure. And I just pray for others who maybe never took a step of faith and trusted you, God, who has the answer to every mistake we make, who has grace for every sin. And I just pray if someone's in this room and they've never said, I wanna follow you, Jesus, I just pray in the quiet of this moment, they would simply say, Jesus, if this is you and you wanna do this, just pray this with me right now. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, help me. I just wanna follow you all the days of my life. Please transform my circumstances so that I can experience the joy of the salvation that you give us. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, would you just raise your hand? If there's anybody in the room, I see those hands. Thank you. You can put them down. I'm gonna pray for you now. Lord, I just pray for those who raised their hand who decided to follow you today. I just pray, God, that you would show them how real you are, how much grace you have for them. You would walk them through the consequences of their life and you would help them see the light on the other side. And Lord, for all you do for us, God, we don't even know everything, but for what you do and we see, we just give you so much gratitude because you're a good God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.